When President Biden declared in an ad-libbed remark and speech in Warsaw that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power, many pundits reacted by calling it a gaffe that could be taken as declaring a policy of regime change in Russia. Why do so many assume that a political leader's moral condemnation of a foreign regime is a call for war? Are there other functions of moral judgment in foreign policy? Well, today we're going to examine the role of moral judgment, not just in the current situation in Ukraine, but in other areas of American foreign policy as well. Uh, so welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll discuss the topic Ukraine and the power of moral judgment. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, junior fellow, Augustina Vergara Sid. Welcome, Augustina. Thank you, Ben. So I thought we should start out <clears throat> by making it perfectly clear what we are and what we aren't saying, because uh, we're going to say something positive about what Biden said, but we don't want to uh, give people the wrong idea of uh, thinking that we are, for some reason, uh, defenders of Biden's foreign policy. In fact, there is quite a lot negative to say about it, much of which we have already said. Um, but Augustina, could you give us some of this background on, uh, as a starting point, uh, the important uh, observations we can make about the moral deficiency of Biden's foreign policy? Yeah, like you said, Ben, there's a lot to criticize Biden for, um, and we have been doing so uh, since he began his administration. But just to name a few examples, and I'm not going to go super deep into that because I don't want to get off topic, but just to name a few examples. Uh, there's, for instance, the attempt to resume the uh, Iran nuclear deal. So the Biden regime uh, is pursuing rejoining the deal with Iran, that deal, uh, that 2015 deal by Obama that they, then Trump withdrew from in 2018. And he, Biden resumed negotiations with Iran in April 2021. Uh, despite Iran's failure to comply with the terms of the agreement, which was still in place when the U.S. withdrew. So the thing is here is like, why are we even trusting a regime like Iran to actually comply? And in fact, they have already not complied. So what is the expectation here? And also, why are we even negotiating with a state like Iran, who is a sponsor of terrorism and who chants death to America time and time again? Um, another uh, cr big criticism that we can make uh, of the Biden administration's foreign policy is the oil negotiations with Saudi Arabia and Venezuela as well. So as everyone has probably heard by now, Biden is banning uh, oil uh, imported uh, from Russia due to you know, Russia's war on the Ukraine. So what he's trying to do apparently is signaling that the U.S. will not deal with Russia because he's, he's doing, uh, Russia is putting is doing all these terrible things. However, he turns around and negotiates with regimes that are uh, just as bad as Russia, basically, like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, the two countries that have as little respect for freedom as Russia does. So it's not really about boycotting, you know, evil regimes or regimes that really do not share values at all. And in fact, they attack our values. But it seems that it's really not about that. It seems that Biden has not learned anything from the, the Russia incident. And then there's, uh, of course, uh, another aspect of Biden's uh, failure in foreign policy is the disaster of the Afghanistan withdrawal. So. As everyone probably recalls, uh, the U.S. withdrew, fi uh, finalized the uh, withdrawal of the troops from uh, Afghanistan in August 2021 and ceded control uh, to the Taliban and left alias behind. And, the, and uh, as we, as most people might remember, there's a lot of chaos that ensued and propelled the Taliban to power once more. Uh, and we have been very, very critical of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, if you search in New Idea in the in our, our Garrett Institute YouTube channel, you can find a podcast episode with Ankur Gatinen and Jorna going in detail about this failure in foreign policy. But another uh, failure is that even with Russia, the START treaty negotiations at the beginning of, uh, of, of Biden's administration. So in 2021, Biden um, extended the last remaining nuclear arms treaty with Russia. And that treaty basically limits the amount of nuclear missile arsenals that both countries can have. 
But again, like with the Iran nuclear deal, it's unclear why Biden trusts the Russians to keep their word and why we are weakening our, our position uh, in front of a regime that is clearly an enemy of America and that is a threat to us. So that is just like a very, very short summary of some of the issues of foreign policy that we are very critical of. And I think these are all examples of cases where what the Biden administration suffers from is a failure of moral clarity and a failure to bring uh, proper moral judgment of foreign enemy regimes to bear. Uh, and uh, which, so this is, a, this is a, an instance of one of the points that I think we want to drive home today. Now, of course, it's true that many of the policy failures that you just mentioned, Augustina, are in one way or another ones that that the Biden administration inherited from previous administrations who suffered from the same problem. Um, but of course, any new administration has the opportunity to fix the problems of previous administrations. I think in these cases, it simply didn't. And, and, and so all of this is just to say, uh, we're very far from being um, defenders of Biden's foreign policy. For the most part, it suffered uh, from moral clarity. Uh, but in the recent war in Ukraine, there's, there was at least one small moment where suddenly, perhaps even in spite of uh, uh, what his advisors told him, uh, we, we got a tiny moment of moral clarity as applied to Russia. And that's what I think we want to talk about right now. Um, for many years, maybe even decades, the uh, American foreign policy has been on the premise of trying to cozy up with Russia, trying to uh, build a stronger relationship, but, uh, you know, and against the warnings of, of many, I think, clear thinkers, the recent invasion of Ukraine brought into relief the, uh, some of the genuine evil of uh, Vladimir Putin that perhaps many were unwilling to recognize previously. And when Biden went to Warsaw and gave this speech, I think that was becoming obvious to him at least. And, and the part of the speech that has caused so much controversy was the bit that came at the very end. But I think it's worth just highlighting briefly some of the, some of the major points that he made in the speech, which have not been discussed uh, by, by most people commenting on that bit from the end. So he starts, by giving a, a bit of a historical overview, talking about the Cold War as a conflict between liberty and repression, uh, which it was. Talking about why the US now stands with Ukraine, because the Russians have oppressed their own people and have invaded its neighbors too many times, all of which is true and a good reason for standing with Ukraine. He argues that there's no basis for Putin's charges against Ukraine, that NATO is not a threat to Russia. It's a defensive alliance, which is true. He talks about how he offered Putin diplomatic solutions. They were rebuffed. He explains why uh, the West now, as a result of the invasion, has imposed sanctions in response to it. He explains how the US is now sending arms to Ukraine. He explicitly says that American forces aren't in Europe to engage with Russia militarily, but they're there to defend NATO allies. He speaks to the Russian people, saying that the war is not worthy of them and that uh, Putin can end it if he wants to. He asks Europeans to stay unified in defense of liberty. He says that the wall, the Berlin Wall didn't come down because Reagan asked for it, but because the people of Europe demanded it. And in that context, having said all of that, he says the following, and let's, let's play a clip of the statement in question that has been so controversial. <laughs> So sorry if the audio wasn't the best on that clip, but the part that's been controversial is the part at the very end where he says, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. 
Now, if you ask me to interpret what he's saying in the context of the overall speech, especially since he's spent some time speaking directly to the Russian people, if you ask me, he's asking the Russian people to end Putin's regime. He's not proposing that we start a war. He's said explicitly in the speech that American troops are not in Europe to engage with Russia. Uh, and I think he's right to not uh, want to get us involved against Russia directly. That is, uh, the stakes in Ukraine are not directly affecting American interests. We don't have, a, we don't have business fighting a war for the sake of Ukraine. That would be altruistic, abject self-sacrifice. But I think he's also right to condemn Putin, and he's right to say that, that he, he cannot and should not remain in power. Uh, to think that what he's doing there is, to, is, is calling for a war, is, is to uh, evade the evidence of the rest of the speech, and it's to engage in, in kind of false alternative thinking, where you say you either say nothing and refrain from judgment, or you go to war, which, which is ludicrous. And Ben, this is not the first time that Biden condemns Putin uh, in these uh, very strong terms. So uh, before he became president, he's called Putin a quote, KGB thug, which in my opinion, he actually is. And he has said that Russia is actually a threat to America. And uh, even like during the presidential campaign, he called Trump a puppet of Putin for, for being so, let's say, to put it lightly, benevolent towards, towards this, basically this dictator, right? So one of the things that, uh, I agree that this actually was a good remark that Putin made, and it doesn't mean that he's calling for war, uh, Biden. but Biden, yeah, sorry. Uh, so what, what I found uh, really, really bad is that the White House later backtracked and clarified uh, his comments on the speech. And they said that Biden wasn't referring to a regime change at all, but that Putin shouldn't be going around, uh, you know, invading neighbor countries or trying to impose, uh, impose himself on power in those neighboring countries and kind of water way, way, way down what Putin actually said and changed uh, its meaning uh, entirely. And then Biden himself said that he was not articulating a policy change or, or talking about taking down Putin, which is, which is actually true, but he was just, uh, uh, he was emphasizing how he was morally outraged at the fact that Putin was doing all of this. He wasn't proposing a policy change. But I think what's interesting about Biden's own clarification is that he's separating uh, morality from policy. He's like, okay, there's my moral outrage on this side. And then on this other side is our policy, which has nothing to do with it. And I think that is actually a mistake because I think that a strong foreign policy needs to be colored by morality. And part of what is right to do here is to condemn Putin's authoritarian regime. And this, this, this moral clarity and moral, uh, perspective in foreign policies with what the U.S. has been lacking for many, many, many years. Yeah, and we're going to talk soon about what the implications of uh, this kind of moral judgment for policy properly would be and how it doesn't mean war. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think uh, in spite of the fact that Joe Biden is a kind of standard American politician who, when he comes into power, is seduced by his foreign policy advisors into trying to be diplomatic with foreign threats. He's, he falls for the kind of foggy thinking at foggy bottom, just like all of them. In spite of that, in spite of his wanting to disconnect uh, his policy from his personal moral judgment, uh, I think in this one moment, he goes off script, he has a moment of clarity. I don't think he often does. Uh, but in this case, I don't see how an honest person could disagree with what he said. Uh, and yet, <laughs> Augustina, we had all kinds of people in the media reacting with horror and outrage, and, and, uh, uh, and there's just stupefied that, that Biden would say something like this. Can you tell us more about some of the things that you saw people saying? Yeah, so there's a lot here. Like, uh, basically, everyone under the sun reacted to this uh, statement by Biden, this, what they call a gaffe by Biden. So I'm just going to name a couple of them. So Tucker Carlson, of course, 
uh, reacted to it, and uh, he attributes Biden's gaffe to uh, cognit to cognitive decline, his own words, and says that uh, Biden and these type of statements and these type of gaps, as he calls them, are a threat to national security and calls for the 25th Amendment to be invoked to remove Biden from office for being unfit. So we have, uh, the, then I, I saw a columnist at the Washington Post, Henry Olson, saying that Biden is either not running the show uh, and that his ad libs uh, are not part of the US foreign policy or that he is running the show, but lacks the filter as he said, uh, needed to uh, not say what he's actually really thinking. So this is a little bit like saying that he lacks a filter, kind of like goes to the a little bit place in the cognitive decline angle that Tucker Carlson claims, I think. Um, and he also said that this gaffe could actually lead to an accidental war with Russia. Then we have a uh, Senator uh, James Reich uh, from Idaho, Republican, that called uh, Biden's statement a horrendous gaffe again and a huge escalation of the already bad relationship with Russia. And then we have uh, President Macron from France that said that uh, he warned, when asked about this, this particular quote from Biden, he says that the West should be really careful not to escalate in wars or in actions, the relationship with Russia. So he was a little bit less um, aggressive, let's say in his approach, but he's still very apparently afraid that this moral combination of Putin would lead to a disaster for the West and of course for the US. It's an interesting range of reactions, everything there from Tucker Carlson to Macron. And uh, there's, I'm sure, different reasons for the kinds of reactions that people are giving there. Uh, they range from everything to just abject tribal, political tribalism to cons more considered philosophical outlook. I mean, Carlson's view, I think, is, is the most uh, uh, abjectly tribalistic. Um, like, I have, I have uh, little reason to doubt that there's cognitive decline involved in most of the things that Biden does and says. But uh, if you watch the speech, he was pretty lucid the whole way through. And that he goes off script in a pretty grammatical way makes me think, no, this he's speaking uh, his mind here. And if your reaction to that is to say, well, it's just a gaffe and he's this is cognitive decline. Why, why, didn't, why didn't Tucker Carlson react the same way when Trump talked about fire and fury in response to North Korea's nuclear provocations, I mean, that's much more of a provocative and aggressive um, military threat than anything that Biden's saying here. But of course, there was no such response from Carlson. I looked it up. Um, one way or the other, though, whether they're just trying to find an excuse to dump on someone from the wrong team, or whether it's a more uh, authentic evaluation, all of these reactions, I think, are uh, uh, involve an appeal to a desire for a kind of appeasement of evil. They all, in one way or another, presuppose that if you make a harsh negative moral judgment of evil, that it, that it opens you up to a threat, that it, it makes the evil more likely to retaliate, for there to be blowback, what have you. And this is all as opposed to what I think is actually true, which is that making a harsh moral judgment, especially of a significant, significantly threatening evil, is actually a source of strength, one that helps you to prevent threats from arising uh, in the future. And, and this is the next thing that I wanted to talk about. And I think it's the central philosophic issue that we wanted to discuss today, because uh, one thing that I think is very distinctive about Ayn Rand's view of morality and of moral judgment is that it is a source of power and that it is a source of strength against the evil, uh, which uh, because in essence, the evil is impotent and that uh, as long as you as long as you pretend that it has power, as long as you pretend that it isn't evil, that's actually where evil gets its power from. And I wanted to share a few historical examples that are closely related to the current political situation in Eastern Europe, just to drive this point home. Because 
uh, one thing that I think is really underappreciated is how dictatorships depend on uh, not being called evil and they depend upon the uh, implicit moral support of their population. As long as their population thinks that uh, what they're dealing with is, is a moral regime, that's where they get their power from. Uh, they need their popular support. It doesn't matter how big their army is. If their people don't believe that they're in the right, they won't be able to, and if their army doesn't believe that they're in the right, they won't be able to use or exercise their power to accomplish their ends. And in his speech, Biden actually gives some interesting historical examples that are worth mentioning uh, in connection with this. So he talks about the solidarity movement in Poland, uh, which was a labor union that was instrumental in rebelling against Soviet control in Poland. I mean, when the, the labor union, remember the communists are the, supposed to be the ones who stand up for workers' rights. When they say this is an oppressive regime, you start to, the, the Soviet regime starts to, to lose its prestige. It starts to lose its moral authority. Uh, Biden mentions the pan-European picnic, which I think not too many people know about, but this was, this was an incident just prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall, where uh, the Hungarian government decided that, that it could no longer stop East Germans who were coming into Hungary, uh, trying to cross over into Austria. And there were so many of them coming that if they were going to stop them, they'd have to shoot thousands of people. Uh, and so they let them go. And at this point, uh, I mean, this is what eventually led to the collapse of the Berlin Wall, because you've got all these East Germans leaving uh, through Hungary. What's the point in stopping them actually in Germany? Uh, he also mentions the Baltic Way, which was a, uh, <clears throat> a human chain that formed across the border of the Baltics with Russia uh, prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, basically protesting Soviet occupation, which was which was at the time heavily publicized. I mean, you've got this many people uh, basically saying we don't agree with this regime. They don't stand for for freedom or justice. It 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 begins to erode uh, their moral authority. And, and these these examples, which Biden did mention, I think helped to set the context for something for another example that he didn't, which probably because he doesn't fully appreciate. Uh, the significance of it, but that was uh, the events surrounding the uh, the rebellion in uh, Lithuania that immediately preceded the collapse of the Soviet Union. Basically, what happened was uh, 1991, the Lithu Lithuanian Republic declares independence uh, from the Soviet Union. Gorbachev sends in the Soviet army to occupy uh, the country, the capital Vilnius, 100,000 protesters show up uh, around the, basically the, the, the broadcasting uh, head, uh, the broadcasting station, TV station in Vilnius, 100,000 of them. Uh, now the Soviet troops at the time do, there's an incident which leads to the shooting of 14 people. Uh, news of this is broadcast around the world. That by itself, really starts to undermine the moral authority of the Soviets. But what's really significant about this event, um, something that uh, objectivist philosopher Harry Binswanger very often comments on, is that at this point, the Soviet army is still really powerful. Uh, there, there are thousands of Soviet troops who are occupying uh, Lithuania at this point. If they wanted to put down this rebellion, they could very well have done so. It could easily have killed far more than the 14 people they did, but they didn't. And I think it's, it's, it's arguable that the reason that they didn't is because they didn't think it was right, that, that the Soviet regime by this point had lost moral authority in the eyes of the Soviet people, in the eyes of uh, even the Soviet army. And so it's not a big surprise that just months later, uh, you get a coup by the, the basically members of the Communist Party, Communist Party apparatchiks, which fails because they don't get the support of the Soviet military. They don't get the support of the people. You have Boris Yeltsin standing on top of a tank uh, and you get then the collapse of the, of the Soviet Union. And that's it. What, what Harry Binswanger often does is that, say, compare this to what happens in China right around the same time, which is the Tiananmen Square massacre, where 
you don't have the same loss of authority where the Chinese Communist Party still has, for some reason or another, retained the respect of its people. Uh, and also they've succeeded in making sure that not much news of this gets out. And so they are much then, they're then much less uh, uh, reluctant to use violence against their people. And of course, they then succeed in, in quelling the rebellion that's brewing in, uh, in Tiananmen Square. Uh, now, this is what happens when a dictatorial government loses moral authority in the eyes of its own people, but uh, where at the same time, uh, the West is, is distracted by many things. There's not a lot of news uh, in the West. The West is still using its usual policy of let's negotiate, let's have a kind of detente with Russia. Uh, and so that's minimal moral support coming from the West, and yet they're still losing moral authority. Now, Russia, Reagan had called for, uh, he'd called the Soviets an evil empire, he'd asked for uh, Gorbachev to tear down the wall, but meanwhile, he was still negotiating arms treaties with the USSR. It was, he had a summit in Geneva and Reykjavik leading up to the, the INF treaty where there was an agreement to, on both sides to reduce uh, reduce uh, intermediate range nuclear weapons. This is what Biden has been uh, trying to resuscitate just prior to uh, the war in Ukraine. So I mean, imagine what would have happened uh, if, the, if the West had been more morally condemnatory of what the Soviets had been doing. Uh, the Soviets were already losing moral authority with their own people without even the help of the West. What if we had withdrawn our moral sanction decades earlier uh, and had insisted on a policy of, of, uh, of condemnation decades earlier, I think it wouldn't have taken as long as 1991 uh, for that regime uh, to collapse earlier. And this is something that Ayn Rand was keenly uh, aware of and commented on in numerous places. And Augustina, there's a, there's a quote uh, that I think we should share with our audience on to this effect, and 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 uh, maybe you can read this for us. It was from her speech, "How does one lead a rational life in an irrational society?" Yes, you can find this um, as a, this form of an essay in the Virtue of Selfishness, her uh, her book. So she says, "Quote." If people did not indulge in such abject evasions as the claim that some contemptible liar means well, that a mooching bum can't help it, that a juvenile delinquent needs love, that a criminal doesn't know any better, that a power-seeking politician is moved by patriotic concern for the public good, that communists are merely agrarian reformers, the history of the past few decades or centuries would have been very different. Ask yourself why totalitarian dictatorships find it necessary to pour money and effort into propaganda for their own helpless, chained, gagged slaves who have no means of protest or defense. The answer is that even the humblest peasant or the lowest savage would rise in blind rebellion were he to realize that he is being emulated, immolated, sorry not to some incomprehensible novel purpose, but to plain naked human evil. I mean, what's, what's tragic, I think, about the history of American uh, foreign relations with the Soviet Union is that there were plenty of people in the West who knew that the Soviets were evil, uh, but who were afraid for one reason or another to pronounce that judgment and who were especially afraid to make it the basis of policy that we had with the Soviets. I mean, Ayn Rand was a, a contemporary observer of this going all the way back to World War II, where because we are uh, fighting a war with the Nazis, we think the enemy of our enemy is our friend. We form an alliance with Stalin. We send the Soviet Union uh, uh, material aid. We send them weapons for the Lend-Lease program. We send them food. Uh, we prop them up. Ayn Rand was of the view that we shouldn't have been allied with the Soviets, that we should have let the Nazis and the Soviets basically kill each other off. Uh, but then even after the war, even when you'd think, uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's understandable why we'd have a very temporary alliance with the Soviets, various forms of appeasement uh, continue. We, uh, there are countless other forms of aid and trade, prestigious diplomatic exchanges that occur. Uh, and uh, 
I mean, the, I think what we're going to argue is the major policy implication acting on a judgment of moral condemnation is that you don't do any of these things. And there's one example in particular, which Augustine, you've written a lot about recently. Uh, another example of what not to do, uh, where you don't need to go to war to act on your judgment, but there's, there's a kind of um, sanction that you should at least not be delivering. And that's the issue of the United Nations. Um, and I should just mention, because today is uh, April 6th, here's front page of the Wall Street Journal. And the, the major headline is Zelensky asks UN to punish Russia. He's asking about kicking Russia out of the Security Council. Thoughts on that, Augustina? So yeah, that's not gonna happen. And let's explore a little bit why. So for a little bit of historical context really quick, uh, so the Russian Federation took over Soviet Russia's uh, seat in the Security Council in 1991. So it became, as was Soviet Russia, a permanent member of the Security Council. There are five permanent members of the Security Council that include Russia, China, the US, the UK, and France. So permanent members of the Security Council have veto power. So Russia has routinely been uh, vetoing resolutions against itself, of course, and against uh, many of Italia allies like Syria, for instance. Uh, and of course, like just in March, beginning of March, it uh, vetoed a resolution against, the, uh, against Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. What happened was that because Russia vetoed that resolution, it didn't pass, of course, and it had to be taken to the General Assembly. But what happens, it passed in the General Assembly, but the General Assembly's uh, resolutions are not, are not legally binding at all. So it really is just a symbolic gesture that Russia could not care less about. And we've seen that it doesn't care about it because it's been still, it's still massacring the, the Ukraine population and are still uh, at war with Ukraine. So, the thing is also that permanent members cannot be removed from the Security Council or the UN as a whole for the UN's own charter because removing a member needs the, the five votes of the permanent members and Russia, of course, wouldn't vote against its own uh, expulsion from the UN. And I honestly don't think neither would China, another regime that's a Russia ally and that usually votes hand in hand with Russia. But the real reason why Russia won't be kicked out of the UN is not this technicality that the, 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 the UN Charter doesn't allow it. You know, it's just, it is a little, it's, that is kind of relevant, but really the, there's a much, much deeper problem going on. And I wrote an article about it, about this. Um, the issue is not the Charter. The Charter is a reflection of the UN's policy of moral neutrality with respect to membership which what the UN does is put free regimes and authoritarian regimes on par. And what it does is give these authoritarian regimes moral legitimacy and a seat on the table with free regimes that respect rights and they treat them as completely equal. So what happens, you were exactly right Ben earlier when you said that uh, uh, a regime like Putin's an authoritarian regime needs this moral validation. And that's exactly what Russia is getting in the UN, this moral validation. Like this is, they deserve a seat on the table with the US, one of the freest countries in the world, right? So what happens in the UN is regimes like Russia get this unearned respectability and they get to, to thrive uh, as their crimes are literally whitewashed because nothing has happened, no will ever happen to Russia in the UN, nothing of any relevance. And same is true, like I said, with China, one of the permanent five members of the Security Council. But also, this is not an issue of just, okay, these, these permanent members cannot be kicked out. You know, they're too powerful, they contribute too much. No, it's not that really, because the UN also has never, uh, hasn't uh, kicked out any member that actually violates the charter. Like it, it can do that, but it hasn't. Uh, regimes like Venezuela, Syria, Cuba, Iran are still sitting at the table in the UN in the General Assembly and nothing has happened to them other than slaps in the wrist for some violations, but nothing of, uh, has really happened and uh, nothing like an expulsion, not even remotely close to an expulsion, of course. So what I think that the US and other free countries should do is exercise a moral judgment and stop sitting at the table with Putin and other thugs like Putin because 
it really is giving them moral legitimacy to sit at the table with them and to negotiate with them and to converse with them. So I think the US and other uh, free countries should absolutely withdraw from the UN. But of course, like I said, that requires a type of moral judgment that we're lacking in the US foreign policy. Yeah, so just uh, wanted to underscore some of the themes that you just hit on uh, by letting people know that there are these there are these two articles that you just wrote on the subject of uh, the UN, one about specifically about um, Ayn Rand's view of the United Nations, about how she thought that uh, it was an organization built up around this idea of moral neutrality, that uh, is the idea that we shouldn't morally judge uh, regimes like Russia, like China, putting them together on par with the other free nations of the world. And you applied uh, this idea specifically to the issue of Russia in this other article uh, on the real reason why Russia won't be kicked out of the UN, which was uh, published in the Orange County Register before we put it up on New Ideal. And I want to emphasize as well that that uh, in addition to the point about how it would, be, it would be great to kick Russia out of the UN if we could, uh, that would be an example of exercising moral judgment and policy without going to war. There are all kinds of other things that we could do in addition to that. Um, and we, the Biden administration is already imposing economic sanctions. Uh, that's an important expression of a moral judgment of another regime that it's uh, posing at least an in our interests and that we shouldn't aid and abet them through our commerce. Uh, there's other forms of uh, international, there's other international organizations that you can kick Russia out of, uh, organizations like the G20 and the WTO. We've talked a bit about the various uh, arms treaty negotiations that we've been having with the, with the Soviets and the Russians over the decades, which Biden has still continued to try to do, uh, that should be stopped. We shouldn't uh, pretend that the Russians are a partner who can be trusted to abide by their agreements. A big part of the reason why the INF treaty broke down was because Russia broke it before we did, uh, Putin did, maybe about 10 years ago. Uh, and I'll, I'll mention just one more, which is that um, I think this is the most radical uh, point, that, but one that should really be considered, which is that when you decide that a foreign regime is overtly hostile to your interests, overtly hostile to freedom, uh, even if it's not you know, going to war with you and if you don't plan to go to war with it, I think there's a really good case to be made for the idea that you should suspend all cordial diplomatic relations, that you should kick, the, kick out their embassy from our country, that you should recall uh, your ambassadors from their country. There shouldn't be any state dinners. There shouldn't be pomp and circumstance. There shouldn't be summits or, or in-person meetings of any kind that have the effect of uh, conveying the idea that this is, these are civilized people uh, who, who, who you can negotiate with in good faith. Uh, you know, if you have messages that you need to deliver to them, if you have ultimatums that you need to deliver to them, there's, you can do that by Twitter. You can do it by the, the red phone but there's no reason to go through the charade of treating uh, dictators like they're civilized. And that's, that's what the effect of uh, cordial diplomatic relations is. Yes, and of course, uh, part of uh, the way to stop doing that is to withdraw, like I said, from the UN, because that's exactly the kind of things that happen in the UN. It's all cordial, it's, there's no moral condemnation at all. You're expected to behave in a certain way and that is unacceptable when dealing with certain regimes. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be great if there were a, a, an organization, an international organization of countries that was legitimately dedicated to peace and freedom. Uh, and uh, if, if the UN wanted to become that and decided to kick Russia and China and uh, Saudi Arabia and other organizations out, I wouldn't have a problem with the US staying in the UN. But if, if the UN won't do that, then yeah, I agree, we should, we should withdraw. And more than that, because they receive a huge amount of support from us and they have real estate on Manhattan, we should kick the UN out of the United States. If they, if they won't uh, become a civilized organization, we shouldn't treat them like they are one. Um, so there's one last topic that I think we should talk about because I think it intersects with a number of the things that we've been discussing today. Um, and, and that's a kind of smaller controversy that's arisen uh, over whether the US and the West 
and various Western corporations uh, are engaging in what's called cancel culture uh, with the various efforts to isolate Russia economically. And, and Agustina, there have been some interesting uh, anecdotes, different commentators, uh, and, and Putin himself even, and cashing in on the, this controversy about cancel culture to, to comment on our, our policies. What have, what have they had to say? So Putin claims that the West is trying to cancel Russia, right? Um, cancel Russian culture. And uh, it compares uh, these actions that the West is taking, like boycotting uh, businesses or boycotting, uh, or withdraw, like some businesses withdrawing from, from, from business in Russia, or, or at least suspending their operations in Russia. He says that they are comparable to the actions of uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, so that's, that is at least questionable. Uh, and then we, it's not just Putin that's saying this, which it's not really surprising, but also, for instance, the, uh, an Arizona state senator, Wendy Rogers, she said that the West is trying to deplatform and debunk Russia, and that this is just as wrong as invading Ukraine. So let that sink in, that, that statement. This is just as wrong as, quote, casting Russia is just as wrong as invading Ukraine. Then we have uh, Sergei Narishkin. I'm not good at pronouncing Russian names, so apologies for that. But he's the head of the Russian foreign intelligence. And he said that, quote, the masks are off. The West isn't simply trying to close off Russia behind a new iron curtain. This is about an attempt to ruin our government, to cancel it as they now say it in, quote, tolerant liberal fascist circles. Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that's a, I, a lot to digest, yeah. I find it very interesting how the rhetoric about cancel culture has uh, migrated into this debate because there's, I'll, I'll make clear right off the top that there's a lot in what people call cancel culture, which, which means this kind of, uh, hysterical censoriousness that you see, especially on the left, uh, that really is bad and really should be condemned, that there are all these irrational campaigns to punish people uh, for having views that are contrary to the latest tribalistic trends. Uh, and I think the, the main thing to say about that is that they are irrational and that they're unjust and that they're tribalistic and that they're engaging in unjustified arguments from intimidation. Trouble is the way that concept cancel culture is often used has exactly the effect that we've just now noticed of, of saying anytime anybody tries to organize to disassociate with someone they judge to be evil, that's irrational cancel culture. But the idea that it's even tempting, that anyone even finds it tempting to say what we're doing to Russia is just cancel culture, I think really brings out how this is an irrational package deal, that, that this is it doesn't serve any cognitive purpose to group together crazy leftists trying to deplatform speakers with, with uh, freedom-loving people in the West trying to oppose a dictator. That, you know, if you want to speak in the terms of cancellation, Vladimir Putin is someone who absolutely deserves to be canceled in the sense that he absolutely deserves to be disassociated from, he absolutely deserves to have his wealth taken away from him, his prestige, his reputation taken away from him really evil people do deserve to be boycotted and condemned. And so, you know, if this be cancel culture, if this be virtue signaling, make the most of it. It's, it's good to signal the virtue of condemning real evil. And this, is, this connects back, I think, to our main theme, which is the power of moral judgment. It, it is not just hot air to signal to the world your view that evil is evil because evil gains its power from your silence. Evil gains its power from your acquiescence in its normality. Uh, it, it gains its power from other people implicitly accepting that it actually is good. So if you want to deprive evil of its power, the first and most important thing that you can do is not going to war. It's, not, uh, it, it's, it's calling a spade a spade. It's, it's condemning evil for what it is. Uh, and if you signal that, if you signal the virtue of condemning evil, and more people see that you're doing it, and more people do the same thing, maybe evil won't get to have its way in the world as, as it is right now. 
So that is uh, the central message that I think we wanted to drive home today. Um, do we have any questions that we want to uh, ask? We haven't gotten too many questions. Um, we are running, oh, there's one that came in. Someone asks, uh, there are only two methods to change the direction of someone's actions, persuasion and violence. How does cancel culture improve liberal values in the world? Well, I mean, this, this gets to what I was just discussing, which is I think that what people call cancel culture is, is, a, is a difficult, uh, uh, problematic term, that it's not clear what it really means. That some of the things uh, that people call cancel culture are these irrational intimidation campaigns, uh, that are tribalistic and, and don't use any evidence to actually explain why someone deserves to be canceled on the one hand versus actually disassociating from real evil. And if what the question is, is how does legitimate uh, moral disassociation and condemnation improve liberal values in the world, especially given the fact that there is a real uh, alternative between persuasion and violence, then I would say is it is the most important form of persuasion that you can engage in uh, to make sure that violence isn't necessary. We wouldn't have to be fighting, we, Ukraine wouldn't have to be fighting a war. If Russia had received the moral condemnation that it deserved many years ago, if the United States had the clarity to realize that Putin was evil and to say that Putin was evil and to refuse to negotiate with him uh, and to call on its allies to think the same way, uh, to make it clear to Russia uh, that, that Western values of peace and freedom would be, would be defended, uh, that countries like Ukraine wouldn't be just left to the dogs, I don't think Putin would ever have invaded. Uh, because he, he gained his, he gains the kind of perception of power from the idea that he's not going to be opposed, from the idea that nobody's going to stand up from, for him. I mean, if, if all the West, I think, would have needed to do was even just a few years ago, uh, make very clear just that they would have these kinds of, they would, they would inflict these kinds of economic sanctions against Russia if they were to invade. Yes, and I think that when we think, like you said, Ben, of cancel culture, we usually think about uh, these people like uh, without much argument or reason at all, just you know harassing and uh, bullying people, other people for having different opinions as theirs. And sometimes it's just opinions that are not really that that could be plausible, true, possibly true on, on subjects that are still being debated about what's true and what's not true. But this cancel culture movement, usually what we think of is like this, this movement, let's say, like soaked in tribalism and irrationality. But what we're talking about here is the withdrawal, like you said, of moral sanction, which is, I think, a better term for this, which does not involve harassing. Like when you see someone that's been canceled, you see harassment on the media, you see harassment on, on social media, you see harass harassment everywhere. This is a withdrawal of moral sanction. It's a way more uh, rational, I think, response to something that is fund that we consider to be fundamentally immoral. And that is, the, I think, the way to go. And like you said, I think it's very, very powerful when a person withdraws, publicly withdraws the moral sanction uh, in the face of evil. I see at least one more question that I think we should address, which is how should one judge the concern of Russia engaging in nuclear or chemical warfare? Um, it is unmistakable that Russia has some very dangerous weapons. They have more nuclear warheads, I think, than any other country in the world. This is part of the reason why I don't think we should go to war with them. This is part of the reason why I don't think we should go to war for Ukraine, that uh, there is not enough that's directly at stake to our interests there to, to, to risk the, the consequences of war with a nuclear power. Uh, however, um, the fact that Russia has such uh, nuclear capabilities at its disposal, I think is, is all the more reason why it's important to not treat them as civilized, not to, and to not treat Putin as someone worthy of respect and negotiation and all the more reason why he needs to be condemned, uh, needed to be condemned many years ago. Uh, the most important kind of isolation that a country like that needs is, 
is moral isolation. Uh, and I would, I would say this, um, that when, I, I think that some of the, some of the criticism of Biden's comments condemning Putin was motivated by the fact that, uh, oh my gosh, Russia has all these, has all these nuclear weapons. And even if Biden uh, isn't exactly calling for war, uh, Russia might take it the wrong way and it'll lead to escalation. Now, actually that didn't happen, right? In fact, if anything, interestingly, uh, we've had something like de-escalation in Ukraine in the past week with Russia withdrawing its troops from Northern Ukraine. Um, so that didn't seem to be actually true. Uh, I do think the West, when it's making policy decisions, whether it's about whom to condemn or about what kind of sanctions to impose or, or, or what kind of uh, uh, relationships to suspend, that even though a power like Russia is, is bristling with nuclear weapons, I think it's important for us not to be afraid of that fact. I think it's important for us not to think that uh, any old thing we say can just trigger them to shoot us anytime they want to. I think, I think that having moral clarity and, and calling them evil as they are is probably the number one best thing that you can do to prevent them uh, from launching some kind of war because it makes it harder for them to have, uh, it makes it harder for them to look like what they're doing is morally justified. They need the approval of the world and of their own people to, to do something like launch a war. And so you need to make it crystal clear that, that what they're doing is wrong uh, and they will, they will sneak away. And I, I also think it, when you make decisions like that about what to say and how to treat them, um, that you also have to remember that we would still win such a war. Uh, let's see if there's anything else that came in. Oh, someone asks, is moral condemnation an appropriate action for the government in general, or should it be limited to the executive branch? Um, I guess part of the question here depends on what do you mean by the government in general? I don't see any reason why it would need to be limited to the executive branch. Obviously, the executive branch is the one that provides military and foreign policy leadership, and that's, a, that's a, a, where moral uh, judgment and clarity is most important, but it's not like the other branches don't have any need for it. I mean, Congress has to be the one to declare war. So Congress has to uh, exercise uh, moral oversight about policies. This is, by the way, uh, responsibility that is um, uh, abdicated too often in the past, that it's deferred far too much to the executive. If anything, uh, Congress should should be much more concerned with with exercising moral judgment than it than it has been. Um, and uh, I mean, you're, as for the other branches, uh, the, the court obviously makes moral judgments too when it finds someone who's guilty uh, of a crime. So uh, I think you can't separate moral values from government. Government is an institution that exists for a purpose that is itself defined by a certain moral code. If you think government exists to protect individual rights. Individual rights are moral concepts, uh, outlining you know, what is the proper boundary uh, of a person's life with respect to others. Congress Obviously, also- Do you have any further thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, no, Congress also ratifies international treaties and a lot of uh, moral judgment is needed there, not just with the content of treaties, but also with who are we dealing with in each treaty. Definitely, yeah. Okay, I think that is, that's good as far as questions go. Uh, I wanna let people know that uh, if you have more questions, a uh, good place to ask them is the event that we're about to do right after this one, which is, which is Clubhouse. We will continue the conversation on Clubhouse. Just uh, look up the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse or go to the ARI's Twitter channel where you, you'll get a direct link to the post show discussion that we're going to have. Uh, I also want to share with our readers and our, our audience some resources if they're interested in learning more about some of the ideas that we talked about today. We uh, read a passage from Ayn Rand's essay, How Does One Lead a Rational Life in an Irrational Society? 
where she comments more generally on the power of moral judgment, but applies it uh, to the issue of foreign policy in particular in that passage that we quoted. You can see that on ARI's website if you go to bit.ly slash rational hyphen life. I'd also like to recommend a book by our, our colleague, Ilan Giorno, What Justice Demands. Now, this is a this is a book about our about Israel and American foreign policy toward Israel, which is something we haven't talked about today. But uh, one of the things I think is distinctive about Elon's book is that he basically applies some of the same concepts we've been discussing today to that foreign policy relationship, and uh, more generally uh, talks about why uh, Americans' judgment about a moral judgment about a country like Israel needs to guide our policy toward it, even if it doesn't mean going to war to fight for Israel or uh, even necessarily sending military aid. It just means if you identify that country as one that is morally superior to uh, the various neighboring Arab states that have invaded it over the years, then you need to act on that judgment and, and treat uh, this country as it deserves to be treated. Also, we referenced a couple of other articles uh, by Augustina that have recently been published. Uh, the one uh, that was published on New Ideal was Ayn Rand's Radical View of the United Nations. That was published recently in New Ideal. You can view it by going to bit.ly slash Ayn Rand Radical View of UN. And also the uh, shorter article of hers that appeared in the Orange County Register and a number of other papers in Southern California, The Real Reason Why Russia Won't Be Kicked Out of the UN. You can see that directly if you go to bit.ly slash Russia out UN. And two more things, since we're talking about Ukraine and the war in Russia, uh, we've done a number of podcasts now on this topic, uh, outlining our view of uh, what's significant about this, about this war, how the United States should think about it. One of them was the meaning of Russia's war in Ukraine. Another one was just a couple of weeks ago or just last week, nationalism in Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, you can get you can see both of those if you go to our YouTube channel at bit.ly slash YouTube. Uh, I also want to draw people's attention to next week's episode of uh, New Ideals. This is a late-breaking topic, but just today, uh, the Washington Post released an article about Alex Epstein's book, Fossil Future. Alex Epstein's a, a former fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and a friend of ours. And the Post had engaged in a preemptive attack on his book before it was even released. And so our uh, colleagues, Keith Lockich and Ankar Gatte, will be on next week to comment on the Post's attack. Uh, and uh, that'll be at a slightly different time than usual. It'll happen on Thursday rather than Wednesday, Thursday, April 14th, and one hour earlier than usual, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. So please stay tuned for that. It'll be interesting to see how they dissect the Post's latest smear campaign. Uh, and one new thing, another new thing I'd like to let you know about is a, a new fundraising option, a new way to donate. Uh, if you enjoy this podcast, you'd like to support our efforts in the future, you'll notice that every time we go live now uh, with New Ideal Live, there's a box that appears in the corner of your screen that says, help ARI spread a new ideal. And this is a, uh, a new experiment we're trying out, a 30-day fundraising campaign. We're trying to raise $5,000. In 30 days, if you if you like this podcast, if you'd like to see more uh, of our ideas spread to a wider audience, uh, and you would and you are in support of the new ideals of reason, individuals, and, and capitalism that the Ayn Rand Institute is promoting, uh, adding something to this fundraising campaign, it would be a great way to show your appreciation. We certainly appreciate uh, those of you who donated uh, just today. I think we've 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 had a number of uh, donations come in as we've been doing this chat. So thanks very much for that. Thanks for anyone who uh, uses the super chat function, of course, as well. This might be a more direct way to be able to help out, uh, not necessarily expecting an answer to a question. You just like to register your support uh, because moral support is important. And that's something that we've been hammering home today. So uh, a few other things, if you would, if you liked watching today and you want to watch more episodes in the future, you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to subscribe to our channel. Click the bell to get notifications when we go live or when new episodes are posted. If you're watching a recording of this episode, uh, consider leaving a comment, liking it or sharing it. That always helps us to optimize the algorithm in favor uh, of getting even more people to uh, see our channel. Same story on Facebook. If you're watching, please like, please comment, please share. 
Uh, and if you have questions you'd like to ask us or, or com comments you'd like to send about what we talked about today, or have or you have new ideas for new episodes, consider sending us an email to newideal at einrand.org. We read everything that comes in. We respond to a lot of, a lot of it. Uh, we even occasionally will do episodes based on topics that people uh, suggest. So uh, looking forward to hearing more of your reactions to what we discussed today. So I think that's everything that should wrap us up. Thanks for this conversation, Augustina. Thank you, Ben. And we will we will see all of the rest of you hopefully uh, in Clubhouse in just a moment. See you all soon. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.